0: Now, as we come to the table, let's focus uh, for some time here um, on verses 10 and 11 and 12, where we're told the Lord was pleased to bruise him, crush him, when he made his soul an offering for sin. And especially these words, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And then I'm going to read this literally to you. He shall see of the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify the many. There are four servant songs. We've looked at a couple of them. Um, This is the culminating of the four servant songs here. And each song becomes more clear and more detailed and more graphic as it unveils what the servant must do to actually save this people. This surely is the most special of these servant songs. This surely is holy ground when we see the Lord Jesus Christ spoken of here by the Spirit and telling us Exactly what he experienced to deliver sinners from judgment. And we ought to be astonished just as the passage opens in chapter 52 verse 13 and onwards that the servant shall deal wisely or prudently in verse 14 many were astonished at you and his visage was marred beyond that of any man and his form more than the sons of men, so shall he, and I think the correct word here is, startle, shock many nations. And kings shall shut their mouths at him. We should be astonished here, seeing God's Son suffering in this way. And not only to be astonished at the fact that, that the Son of God could come and suffer in this way, but that the reason that he's suffering is because his people are sinful and because he loves his people. And when kings understand this and see that the despised, cursed, contemptible Jewish Messiah has been exalted to the throne of all things, they shut their mouths at him. Now in this passage, there's many things we can say about the suffering. Um, But we're told in verse 10... I think a way that it sums it up here, that it pleased the Lord to crush him and he has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. They've translated that their guilt offering because that's what it means. But the Hebrew says he made his soul an offering for sin and that clearly is a guilt offering. But see that word there in the second line, He has put him to grief. And there's many angles we could take to enter into the sufferings of Christ. But let's surround them around this word grief. It's not the only place in the passage that we're told that he's put to grief. We're told in verse 3 that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And that's what we see in the supper. That's what we see in Christ's death. That's what we need to enter into if we are to know something about our Lord and what it took for him to save us and what our sin deserves so that we can praise the glory of his grace. It is that Christ experienced an unparalleled grief. And that word is very full as we're about to see. It's not the grief we usually think of. As deep and painful and stinging as that grief is in losing someone to death or broken relationships and these things we all experience grief and it can be very extreme even in our own experience. But that's not the grief Christ is feeling. His grief here is deeper and more profound and more severe and it would do as well to understand something of it. And when it calls him there a man of sorrows, I think that that describes him in his whole life, but that it concentrates and culminates clearly as he dies for sinners in their place, that that's when we see him fully as the man of sorrows. So let's see... Uh, something about these things. Let's see him suffering in grief, that the servant suffers. Then let's see that the servant comes out of that and is satisfied. And then after we take the supper, I'll say something about what the servant then shares with his people, the inheritance that's mentioned towards the end of the passage. So he suffers, he is satisfied, and He shares. He suffers. Throughout his life, he is a man of sorrows. Throughout his life experience, his awareness, his growing awareness of who he is and why he is there becomes clearer and clearer. Even as he reads Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, and the rest ...of the Old Testament Scriptures. He has an increasing... ...detail... ...and focus... ...upon... ...what the Messiah is to experience. And he knows... ...that he... ...will bear the sins... ...of his people. He knows that he's come to save. He was named Jesus... ...for he shall save his people... ...from their sins. And he's aware of that... ...in a growing way... I can't say much more about that because the scripture is quite silent on exactly what Christ was aware of and he doesn't say anything about it but he clearly was aware of it and that that only increased his loneliness. The utter dependence he must have only upon his father and the Holy Spirit but he bears that knowledge alone. He doesn't fully tell his family about it Even his disciples, when he begins to open it up to them, there's a complete resistance in these things. He is a man of sorrows. Let no Christian shy away from being a man or woman of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Let us us not design our lives on some other foundation, uh, that the Christian is always light and easy and things like that. How can we enter into the mind of our Lord at all and be one with him and be filled with the Holy Spirit if we are not grieved by our own sin and all the sin we see around us and the lost souls and the condition of the kingdom of God when it descends how can we be anything but a people of sorrow? Now that doesn't delete our joy but we must have these sorrows if we're anything like Our Lord. But um, the grief spoken of here and the sorrow spoken of here, though it may be true at some level throughout his life, this chapter is speaking especially of how it comes upon him and hits him as he truly is set apart as the Lamb of God and sacrifice. And especially as he sets himself to offer himself for the sins of his people. It's one thing for him to know as he reads the scripture and prays to his father. To know that he will bear the wrath of God. It's one thing for him to know that the scripture says that guilt will be transferred to me. It's one thing for him to read this chapter and to see that he will be oppressed and afflicted and led to the slaughter, that he will be stricken and blown and crushed. It's one thing for him to know that. It's another thing for him to begin to experience it and taste it. The things that are written here are his experience of having that transferred to him and him beginning to pay The penalty. The things written here are the things that he finally saw in the Garden of Gethsemane. The explanation of the drastic change. Yes, he's troubled. We read that in John 12. In that week, there are bouts of trouble that come upon him as it becomes very clear, very near, and he can sense it. But the glory of his high priestly prayer and the confidence and the serenity and the beauty and love and his sense of glory and majesty as he stands and gives that prayer for the good of the ones who were listening and as he prays for them, the drastic change in a matter of an hour. From that stance to what he then begins to experience in that garden of Gethsemane. Its explanation is found in this chapter. That when he prayed in majesty as priest, in that garden he is not conscious mostly of being priest, but of becoming the sacrifice. And we know the intensity and reality of what God showed him because he calls it a cup and he sees inside it and he asks that that cup would pass from him. There's no record of him asking that before. He sees something of this grief that he'd known and anticipated but he begins to experience the grief as he sees the horror of what will cause that grief. He sees it and for my sake... And for your sake, he moves in to it. We we know something about this in the garden from this passage. Because in verse 6, for example, it tells us that the, the Lord Jehovah laid on him the iniquity of us all. Or made it to fall upon him. Or made it to come and meet Him. That's telling us that as much as we marvel that of Christ's sorrows, and as much as we marvel that he is grieved, and we're about to see some things that will open out for us exactly what that grief was, as much as we marvel at it all, we must take from this chapter the clear note that it keeps telling us that. This is substitutionary, this grief. It's not just a concept, and it's not that he's just experiencing something difficult. The grief and the laying on upon him, the iniquities, the transgressions, the strikes and the blows, they all speak of his sufferings. What the chapter is telling us is that He's doing this as a substitute. That the reason for this grief is that he's standing in the place of others. Yes, something is laid on him. Yes, it's for our iniquities and transgressions. But it's the guilt of those things that are placed upon him in the Garden of Gethsemane as the sacrificial lamb or the sacrificial scapegoat. The guilt of these things. I know we say, my sin was put upon Christ and he died for sinners and he, he had the sins of his people upon him and we say things like, his blood saves us. Now these things are all true in their own way, but how often they can be repeated without a full logical understanding of what really is going on and some some understanding there can really open up our spiritual experience they can really open up our deep gratitude and amazement at what christ has done when we do something like this when we say he died for me well the first thing i have to ask is well what does that mean what exactly does it mean for there are soldiers that die for their companies, that are fathers that die for their families and save their families, There are lots of people that die for other people. And Jesus died for me. Well, what does that mean? What is this grief? Well, he's a substitute. And the real truth this morning is that at that time, the very guilt of our sin was placed upon him. He receives and he becomes responsible for what our sinful lives deserve. He never had a sin. These aren't his actions. These aren't things that he has done. These aren't infractions and breaches of God's law that he has done. They are My actions and your actions. They are our breaking of God's law. They are the things that you and I commit. They are the things that you and I refuse to do. It is I who have broken God's law. It is you that has committed these things. He didn't do any of them at all. But it's not that he feels some kind of guilt. It's not that in the garden as he goes to the cross, it's not that we could say it's as though he had our guilt on him, as some kind of idea. No. He becomes liable and responsible for every sin that you and I in Christ have committed and every Christian who's ever lived. Not as though he's guilty. He is guilty for them. The guilt guilt becomes his. He doesn't pretend that it's his. He takes ownership of it fully. So that God, as his judge and Lord, when he looks at Christ... He sees in Christ those actions, those commissions. He sees it. And he looks at Christ. And without restraint, there is a movement towards Christ to treat him. Not as though he had committed these things, but very really in the place, in the sense that these things have been committed. God doesn't look at him and say, I have to pretend that you committed these things. No, God just looks at the guilt. And the, the sonship is shrouded from God in his judgment. And when he looks at his son, he actually sees my life and yours. There is a guilt transfer that we see in this passage. My lying, your lying our dishonoring, our our cheating, any adulteries of mind or body, our impieties, our attitude to the things of God, our lack of godliness in life and worship, our covetous hearts, any selfishness, our our cowardness and fears, uh, to not stand for God, to not do what is required and what we must do, our lack of honor, of authority, our our railing against it, our manipulation of it, our false humility, our pretense at being more righteous than we are, lowering him in any way, dishonoring him in any way. Now, any Christian should be very concerned and interested with these things. If you don't have these things, if you can't see that you have these things, then the cross cannot be for you. Otherwise, he died some romantic death uh, for for people who who were quite bad and he shed his blood for them and that's all uh, resolved and sewed up. No, Isaiah wants us to understand that he was bruised for my iniquities. He was wounded for my words and actions and thoughts. The chastisement due to us was upon him. All this transfers to Jesus Christ when he is in the garden of Gethsemane. And just see it, brothers and sisters, in the broken bread, in the fruit of the vine, in his broken body and his poured out blood. See what your life has done. See yourself being carried See your guilt, your liability being carried by him. And enter in in your soul and mind to what you truly deserve. And be amazed at the love that he's shown you. It's very uncomfortable uh, to know our sin. There's always that element in us in the natural man that resists that revelation and uncovering. We all have that And we shouldn't um, become obsessed with the guilt of our sin and to the exclusion of everything else Christ has done for us. But the Bible is clear that, that an intelligent entering into, that truly accounting and adding up the numbers and seeing what was really transferred to this man, to this son, to this savior, will immensely change and deepen our Affection for him and, and the glory that we see in the gospel the one always leads to the other and we see him receiving that guilt and entering that grief and sorrow the moment that transfer happens he is immediately betrayed his disciples are prayerless as you and I often are He's alone. He's in the dark. Soldiers come officially from the church to bind him and arrest him and tie his hands. He is immediately struck and punched and abused there and then. He is dragged away like a criminal under condemnation. He is spat upon and ridiculed, he is brought before courts he is falsely accused and lied about he is made fun of he is surrounded by aggression and murderous intent and the power of resentful men he is ashamed being treated that way because of who he is. He is then questioned by a Roman official who is actually his subject. He is then scourged limb to limb. He has thorns pressed into his head. He is bleeding and in immense physical agony. He is deserted by those who loved him. He is denied by his closest apostle, who he has a special place in his heart for. He then must carry wood that is heavy in in his condition, through a city that was meant to be holy and filled with the glory of God. He is made to be ridiculed. <clears throat> he is left to the mercy of Roman soldiers. He then has metal driven into his body and then he is lifted up, pinned with the weight of his body in immense agony. He hasn't eaten He hasn't had something to drink. He may have been stripped of all of his clothes. And he has blaspheming worldly men hanging next to him. Then he is tempted by the chief priests of the day, pulling their faces at him, ridiculing him, blaspheming him, scorning him, He is grieved. We will never experience that. Most people never will. Them all put together in that way. People have suffered in this world. Christians have suffered and been killed like this in some ways. But there's something else going on with it. He's experiencing all that spiritually as he goes through it, too. And as you look at everything I just laid out before you, be in no doubt at all that this is what a sinner deserves. We should never say, I am a good person. We have no comprehension at all what God thinks of the kind of things we think, say, and do. We just don't take it seriously. The wages of sin, any sin, is death. And in the day that you eat thereof, Dying, you shall die. We don't understand because we weren't in the Garden of Eden. And we make excuses for the way we're born. We have no idea the kind of people we were created to be. We are made to be sinless. Wise. Full of knowledge. Full of of love, and perfectly holy. That's why we were made. No one says that today. They say, this is human nature. This is the way we are. What can we expect? That's what we were made to be. And look at the way we live, even when we know that. We find immediately how much we deviate from every part of that. And in Christ's physical sufferings here, you see that. But there is a deeper grief. As much as other people may have died this way, how much of a deeper grief is there? You know from your four Gospels, you all know your four Gospels. You'll know how his demeanor has entirely changed from the rest of his ministry as he's going through this, especially that he hardly says anything as he's going through it. The, the passage, Isaiah highlights that. He says in verse 7, As a sheep before its shearers is silent, he did not open his mouth. You, and you know Jesus. You, you watch him minister. You watch him preach and teach. Look at how much his behavior changes when he's dealing with this. This is not just a Christian being martyred there's a deeper grief going on and you can see the grief laid on him in the garden you can see the guilt and the punishment and the responsibility for our lives that he becomes aware of it he can actually begin to sense the guilt to to feel that he's guilty He, he begins to feel the dread of the judgment of almighty God He begins to experience that, the anticipation of it, the sense of his father's displeasure, the sense of the shame and the ugliness of our sins. He's aware of that. And you can see how much it affects him because he hardly speaks. He only opens his mouth when it's absolutely necessary because the grief and the the horror in his mind and heart as he has become acquainted with this, really is affecting him. He merely tells Peter, put the sword away. He interacts with Pilate, but only on a need-to-know basis. He doesn't speak to Herod. He doesn't even open his mouth in the Sanhedrin. He only says two things. What have I done that you strike me? And then when they push him and he won't answer, And then they put him on oath before God's name. He speaks like he didn't speak in his ministry. He spoke in grace and warned them of the judgment to come. And told them to anticipate it. And and to do something now to change. And he gave them hope. But when he's questioned in that Sanhedrin. And they are pushing him and pushing him. And the high priest, in complete disrespect of him, says, I put you on oath in the name of God Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Christ only speaks because he has to. And says, it is as you say, and I tell you that hereafter you will see the Son of Man coming on the right on the clouds of heaven and at the right hand of the power on high. You see the difference in what is coming out of Christ. Because he's aware this is on him. He sees their evil and he just pronounces their judgment and his glory as the Son of Man. The rest of the time he barely speaks at all in those hours. Why? Because he's spiritually suffering. The guilt is affecting him. The shame is affecting him. The beginning of the wrath is affecting him. The hands tied and him being bound and dragged. And when they're hitting him, he's aware that this is the righteous judgment of God. And though it's happening outwardly, he's experiencing it spiritually. He senses God's displeasure. He senses God's anger. He senses abandonment and forsakenness. He senses being cursed. The passage tells us to be very careful uh, to know that these are spiritual uh, sufferings. When it says in verse 10 um, he makes his soul an offering for sin. Not his body though his body is included but the emphasis is not on the body. The emphasis is on his soul, That that is what is being offered. And the wrath is being poured upon his soul. His mind, his heart, his emotions and his spiritual life. On him. On who he is. And he's exposed entirely to it. It says uh, later on that he shall see in verse 11 of the labor of of his soul and be satisfied the travail of his soul literally the birth pangs of a woman in labor the man of sorrows acquainted with grief the lord putting him to grief the soul being made an offering and the labor and travail of his soul are the very heart of what he suffered for you and i The birth pangs. The picture in Scripture is always very clear. And he told his disciples in the upper room, You shall mourn as a woman in labour. He is travailing as a woman in labour. Just a picture from our world that clearly captures something of what's going on in his soul. The intense pain, the unbearable agony. Connected to the curse. How overwhelming it is. Well, as a woman experiences that physically, in the intensity, in the contractions of the body, and how unbearable that pain is, and how overwhelming and all-consuming that pain is, then he has that in his soul. His soul is experiencing Agony and contraction as he increasingly is led like this and brutalized. But as he's put on the cross and the darkness comes and he is silent as the suffering servant and as the Lord God Almighty, instead of punishing the weak Christian. He instead directs the wrath and the just punishment and death that we deserve in our lives right now. It goes through Christ's soul and his soul is in labor under the anger of God. He puts him to grief and lays upon him and strikes upon him with a blow, a hard blow, the iniquity of us all. This infinite wrath, this rejection, this just anger against lifelong sin and a people who were laden with iniquity And the guilt those sins deserve. Forsaken in the sense, not just being left alone by God, but forsaken in the sense as you are cursed, you are disgusting, you are damned, you are rejected, you are sin and you have nothing to do with the goodness of God. You are outside and all you know now is my anger. And in those three hours, Christ experiences that eternal wrath, that everlasting destruction. Somehow, in the wisdom of God, he experiences it. He tastes it. It goes through him. It fills him. And in that time, his mind and soul are only aware of it. It was like being in hell. Those in hell only know the wrath of God. And when they look at God, all they see is his anger and his righteous and holy displeasure with what they have done with the lives that he gave them in his goodness. The Lord told us himself, he spoke more of hell than anyone And he warned the people more than any prophet did. And he said that in that place the worm doesn't die. The fire isn't quenched. And there is wailing and the gnashing of teeth, which is the extreme anger and distress of people who know they will experience no goodness again. Well, Christ went into that experience of woe. It says he was a man of sorrows, verse 3, acquainted with grief. He knows grief. He knows it. And that's because of what I just described to you that he experienced. Christ knows this now. He remembers it. Christ doesn't look at judgment and wrath and say, I wonder what that is like. He went through it. He doesn't even look at hell and have no understanding in his holiness of what it might be like because he knows what it is to be damned as a a sinner. He knows because he was damned as a sinner and he exhausted that wrath and it burned up within him. For you and me, And he did it all out of love. A grieving, suffering Savior. Out of love. Immense, unparalleled love. This is the greatest love story. This is the greatest display of love in the history of the creation. This is what it's all about. We don't look for love everywhere else. It's right here in front of us. It pleased the Lord to crush him, verse 10, and to put him to grief. It pleased him, not because God takes pleasure in punishment in the wrong way or takes pleasure in brutalizing his son in this way, but the Lord takes pleasure in it because this had to be done to save those who couldn't save themselves, to save those who should be damned. And the Father takes pleasure in it. He so loved the world that he gave his son to this. He loved his people, the Father, he loved them. And he put his son to stand in this way and to, to be hit by the, this wave so that we would not. And Christ is doing this all in love for his bride. He loved me, Paul says, and he gave himself for me. He was roped for me. He was led and spat upon for me. Should it, it should be me being spat on by everyone. He was struck for me. He was led there for me. He was tried and condemned for me. He was raised on Calvary for me. And he went into that three hours of suffering in darkness and in wrath and damnation for me. What love. How intense the love must be. How determined and committed it must be. This husband... These things just keep cutting across him in deep grief as he goes into a soul-agonizing labor and the physical and spiritual and mental anguish and pain. And Christ is looking at the unbridled, eternal anger of a dreadful God whom he fears and whom he dreads, but he still keeps entering into it. What kind of love must sustain him over that immense love that is? That is something of what Isaiah means here when he unveils God's word and says he put him to grief and made his soul an offering for sin. What awful sufferings. Let me bring another thing before you before we come to the table. As deep as that suffering had to be, it achieved something glorious. That Christ went so low that he might be raised so high. And the height and the glory is just as important in this passage as the Apostle Paul says in Uh, Philippians 2 that he he was in the form of God but he was made in the form of a servant Paul's probably commenting on this passage a form of a servant and and the likeness and fashion as a man and he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross therefore God hath highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name The glory is seen here and Christ receives it and it satisfies him as deep and as grieving as the suffering was. Christ is on the throne this morning involved in our Lord's Supper to serve as the supper and communicate his grace. He does it as a glorified Lord who is no longer grieved or suffering in any way. And as deep as it is here, it immediately says that when he makes his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed and he shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see his seed and prolong his days. Why is this a comfort to Christ? And why is it helpful for us to know exactly what this means? Well, as as awful as it was for him once he's through it he sees his seed and that's that's important he receives a glory and prolongs his days he prayed that in his prayer glorify me now father exalt me father this chapter the previous chapter said he shall be extolled and be very high and many will be astonished at him He sees all of this because his work is complete. So once he's passed through the birth pangs of God's wrath, when God um, receives him before his face, when God raises him from the dead and exalts him, Christ is aware that his work is complete. It's been accepted already. that that it wasn't in vain, that there's nothing missing from it, that all of the reasons that he did it have all been accomplished. And being told here that he shall see his seed is about him having a people. The suffering king here, we're told, who shall declare his generation, verse 8. He was cut off from the land of the living. He doesn't have any seed. He's a king, but he has no kingdom. He's a king, but he has no heirs. These kings leave heirs, and their seed then takes the throne after them. And one of the great reproaches of the Messiah was he's cut off in the prime of his life, and he doesn't have a royal family to take the throne and these things. How can he have a people, just as the Jews still read this with scales on their eyes, they look and they say, how can this be the glorious Messiah? How can he have a people? He has no palace in Jerusalem. He has no throne. How can he have been successful? Yes, he had no generation naturally at all. But God says here he shall see his seed. And he shall see of the labor of his soul, verse 11, and be satisfied with it. The birth pangs are worth it because then you have the child, don't you? The birth pangs are worth going through because there's the child. Well, Christ, it was worth it to go through these birth pangs because then he has children. The servant who in this prophecy is the branch. A fruitful branch cut off in the stem of Jesse. A finished royal family but a shoot coming out of that stump and christ brings life where there was death and he has a people we read it in our first passage unless the grain of wheat falls into the ground it will remain alone but if it dies it will bring forth much fruit and grain and there's christ's joy and glory that he has a seed And that the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And he shall see the result of the birth pangs of his soul. And it satisfies him. There's Christ in glory right now. Satisfied. Anguished and griefed beyond anyone who's ever experienced anything like that. But he is the one who's satisfied. No one else is. And he's satisfied because he has that people. He's had them since his exaltation throughout the history of the church. And today in the world, Christ is satisfied in that way. That there is a people who are elect and he calls them to himself and no one can stop him. And it satisfies him and he rejoices in it. And if we are the elect of God this morning... And we know and love the Lord, and we've come here to worship Him and honor Him and meet with Him and commune with Him. That satisfies Him. He is moved by that, He enjoys that. He shall justify the many, He says here. And He does that. And if you're in Christ, He's done that for you. You are justified. The transfer is complete. He was grieved for it and now you have his righteousness and he's bringing forth his image in you. And he looks and he sees his children and it's working. We're here this morning, if we're in Christ, we are the direct result of that suffering in our place and on our behalf. Here I am and the children the Lord has given me, Christ says in the prophets. In this very next chapter, sing, O barren, chapter 54, You who did not bear children, You have not labored with child more are the children of the desolate woman than the children of the married woman. Here's Christ. Chapter 53 produces what is here a maternity ward in chapter 54. For those who've never labored with child before. The supposedly barren. But life comes out of this suffering. And then in verse 2. A great tent must be erected and extended. Take up the stakes and spread out the tent. Like a wedding. Why? Because chapter 53 is going to fill that tent. With a multitude no man can number. His grief, his work is so complete and so glorious that it saves a multitude that none of us can number. An elect that none of us can number. You discouraged about the condition of the church. You discouraged about our church here. You discouraged about the reformed church in this nation. You discouraged about the state of the world. Well, give that its place. And be burdened for it in its right way. And deal with the issues as they are there in the right way. But that does not affect the truth whatsoever. That Christ will not lose one soul that's elect. And that he's satisfied with calling them. They're all perfectly justified. And Christ is not being stopped by anyone today. From gathering his people from every nation of this earth. To join a multitude no man can number. Well. Well. I'm not a member of a church that is anything but the bride of Christ that has a multitude no man can number who has a glorious king who is afraid of no one and who justifies, calls, and saves anyone whom he pleases. What glorious things Christ has done. He suffered in that way and he's satisfied in this way. So as we come to the Lord's Supper, remember these things. Enter meaningfully into it. You can take this because he saved and elected you. You can take this because he really did this in your place. And you can take this because we do not worship a conceptual Christ but a flesh and blood Messiah on the throne of glory right now who really came into your life and who really dealt with your sin in this way and who is with you in this way and who is still conferring his grace from the effects of his death and resurrection to you. You are his seed. You are the fruit of the travail of his soul. And your sins have been forgiven for these reasons.